Please be seated. And as you take your seats, please open in your scriptures back to John chapter 13. And you might want to put a marker there because that's where we're going to end up this morning. John chapter 13. Eventually we'll be looking at two particular verses, number 34 and 35. As Rick mentioned earlier, we've been talking about what is the church. And the church has suffered a severe blow because of COVID. Um, COVID required that many things shut down, including the church. And it, to a degree, makes sense. People are afraid of catching the virus. Of course, the virus has not been here with us for several months here in our arena, our church. Uh, but it is a frightening prospect, isn't it, to catch COVID? And it seems like there's a new variant, and the good thing is that the variant seems to be weaker. That is the general rule of viruses. With each generation, it becomes weaker and weaker. The bad news is that we have a new variant. There comes a time in which we just have to get used to the fact that this virus is going to be within our borders, probably for the rest of our lives. And we trust in the Lord that God will see us through. From day to day, whether we go to work or school or wherever we may go, to the supermarket or to church, that God is going to protect us. Of course, it is wise to take precaution where necessary, and that's what we should do. But because of COVID, the church has taken a significant blow in terms of attendance. But the truth is, is that in America, church attendance has been declining significantly over the years. So that today, the number of people attending church, we were just talking about this downstairs, the number of people attending church in America, adult-wise, is only 40% of all Americans once or twice a month. It's pretty low. Only 40% of American adults attend church once or twice a month. And of that 40%, only 30% actually attend weekly. And so when I say the church has taken a significant blow, I am not saying necessarily hope church has taken a significant blow. What's going to happen to us What I am saying is that the people of God have taken a significant blow. To a great extent, we are injuring ourselves. Because the church is essential. Church is essential. It is essential not only for your soul, it is essential that we worship God. This morning, I want to draw a picture once again for you as to how important the church is We've talked about what the church is not. We've talked about for two weeks as to what the church is. Let me speak to you this morning as to what the church or why the church is here. Why the church is here. What is our purpose? I want you to see that the church provides hope in very anxious days. I think you would agree that these are anxious days. And in order to make my point, let me point you to Hollywood. The Warner Brothers movie, DC comic movie, The Batman, came out just four weeks ago. And so far it has grossed over $600 million, without counting this weekend, worldwide. That's a lot of bucks. 600 mil. 
and it's increasing. It is the 16th Batman movie in the anthology. Um, World Magazine, a very right-winged, right-leaning magazine, says it might be one of the best movies in the franchise. Interesting about this movie is that it is extremely dark, very somber, very gloomy, and Batman, once again, has a very gravelly voice, like mine. <laughs> and the idea here is that it is intended to convey a particular gloom over Gotham. It is so dark that there's only about three scenes that are actually filmed in daylight. All of it takes place in, in the night. The scenes are so dark that a new lens technology actually had to be developed in order to be able to see the actors, to be able to see the characters in the movie. I have not seen it. I have not watched any of the Batman movies, actually. But World Magazine says that there is a dirge-like quality to the film. A dirge is a song you sing at funerals. A dirge-like quality to the film. Gotham, of course, is the city that Batman is supposed to protect. And you're wondering, why in the world are we talking about Batman on a Sunday morning? <laughs> stick with me, stick with me, okay? Gotham is the city that Batman is supposed to be uh, protecting, uh, and often people refer to Gotham as New York City, and I suppose that's correct. But, but Gotham portrays more than just New York City. It portrays, in particular, any city that is broken, dark, because of depravity. It's not just New York City. It's a city without any light, a city without any hope, infested by human depravity. That's Gotham. And so the city creates a very dark enforcer to mete out imperfect justice through violence, in order to protect a city that's filled with injustice and violence. <laughs> that's Batman. And I mention all this because the movie resonates with the general public 600 million times over and growing. And that's because the movie portrays a futility that exists in a life outside of Jesus Christ. You see where I'm going now, right? It's a futility that exists in a life without Christ. Again, World Magazine says, Batman fights against life's futilities with rationality, with cold rationality, struggling to understand love. At the end, there is a lesson to be learned, a lesson is conveyed, I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but at the end, there is this understanding. Vengeance won't save the world, but maybe hope will. Here is a suggestion for you. Save 18 bucks, read your Bible. You'll come <laughs> to the same conclusion. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the comic strip or the comic book, you know that Batman, when it first came out, was very dark and very bleak. In fact, uh, I remember watching the cartoons with my sons and surprised to see how back in the 1930s and 40s, those black and white cartoons were extremely dark. And I, I was rather surprised some years ago when I saw that. 
in the 30s and 40s. And we all know what was happening during the 30s and 40s. Originally, the comic book hero was a depiction of that culture. The culture in America was very dark, very bleak, very gloomy, very confused and frightened. And so the comic book and strip made it, became very popular. Why? Because it was speaking the language of the time. As World War II was looming over the heads of so many people in Europe and then eventually here in the States and beyond. Now, I mention this because I want you to consider, keep in mind, as you look at our present day and age and how dark it is, and it is dark, it is gloomy, it is uncertain, I want you to consider that things were not far different 80 years ago. How dark and bleak it was. I do think it's darker today, but it was dark. And so now here we have this pop culture extravaganza, The Batman. That's the full title. Pop culture is very telling. It is very telling of who we are. Uh, it, it is said that pop culture is a roadmap of culture. In other words, take a look at what popular culture, music, entertainment, take a look at what it is presenting, how people are consuming it, how popular is it, and it'll give you a good idea as to what direction we are going as a country. What do you think? What is pop culture telling us about ourselves? So you see, pop culture is a roadmap showing us which way we are headed, the trajectory of our society. But pop culture is also a mirror. We look at pop culture and we see ourselves. When we look at popular culture, we're able to identify who we are today. Now, if this movie was to be made back in the 80s, it would have been a sure flop. Because the 1980s was all about fun and decadence. It was the decade of decadence. No doom, no gloom. But the 2020s are a completely different story. Uh, we face drear and uncertainty. Uh, today, we don't know what is right from wrong. Back in the 80s, we said, it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Today, we wonder, is it really wrong? We have no idea as to what moral standards are. Things are just being redefined. And of course, there's all sorts of uprisings and confusion. And that's the picture of the world we are facing today. And what this movie simply speaks is the language of today, and it is resonating with the psyche of Americans. And that's why it's become such a hit. Most movies are designed to speak to the psyche of the culture of that time. And this movie has captured it very well. Here's my point, my friends. And you know this, but I want to underscore it yet again. We are living in a very dark world. A hopeless world. And for that reason, we need the church of Jesus Christ. The church brings the hope of Christ into a dark and bleak existence. And it is the church of Christ that speaks to God, and we find our hope there, 
And then we speak of God so that they could find hope as well. The church is essential. I wonder to what degree we realize how essential the house of God is. Or we're so accustomed to it. You pretty much know the routine. And we figure that it's optional. That it's not so essential, but it's a good thing. I shouldn't eliminate it. But we wonder whether or not it's essential. Listen, listen carefully. The household of God, the worship of God, the teaching of the word of God is essential. Your soul will shrivel up without it. Why are we here? Well, we have three directives in the scriptures as to why the church of Christ is here. What is our purpose? We have two great commandments and one new commandment. And again, I'm borrowing from Pastor Clink, who's out at Hope Church in Roscoe, Illinois. I don't know him, but our churches are named the same. He's a good writer, quite the academic, and a good preacher. And I appreciate what he wrote in his book, The Local Church. He notes the three purposes of the church. Here's the first one. Love God. We are to look upward and worship God. That's number one. Number two, we are to love our neighbor. We are to look outward and be a testimony, a witness of Christ to people outside these walls. And then we are to look inward, that's number three, look inward and we are to nurture one another. Look upward, look outward, look inward. The sum of everything we do is in these three purposes. Why are we here? To accomplish these three things. Clink notes that everything the church does is driven and directed by these purposes. A church cannot choose to do one or two and not the other. No more so than I can choose or you choose that today I'm going to drink and eat but not breathe oxygen. In order for us to stay alive, we need all three, food, water, and oxygen. So it is with the church. All three are essential. Worship, witness, and nurture. So let's break these down in the time that we have this morning. And I want you to see the three-pronged purpose of the church and answer the question as to why we are here, what is our purpose. The first one is... We are to look upward and worship God. It's the first great commandment. Jesus Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And this is what he said. It's recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The greatest commandment is the foundation of the Christian worldview. A worldview is how you understand the world around you. A worldview tells you how to to interpret the news how to determine your politics, how to relate to people around you, how to see even the good or the bad that happens to you. How do you understand it? That's your worldview. And the Christian worldview gives you all the answers you need and pushes you forward in order to succeed in this life and in eternity. And the Christian worldview says, God first, 
God supreme, God always. That's where the Christian worldview begins. God first, God supreme, God always. And let's take a look at one of the recordings in the scripture of this first great commandment. Let's take a look at the Luke record. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. I'm going to assume that you are familiar with it, maybe more so than just familiar. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. If you are not familiar with it, you will be in the next three minutes. Luke 10, 27. Jesus Christ, in answering the question, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, mind, and heart. In other words, the greatest commandment that God gives to us is that we love him with all of our being. All of it. By the way, it is very easy to be religious and not love God. Isn't that amazing? It is very easy to be religious and not love God. But what we see here in this commandment, Christ is making very clear that religion without love for God is not only useless, it is a violation. It's not only useless, you're actually sinning against God by being religious without love for God. So you are to love God with all your heart. That is, you are to love God with all of your feeling. And you are to love God with all of your soul, which refers to your inner person, all that you are. And you are to love God with all of your strength. That is, you are to love God with all that gives you enabling power. And you are to love God with all of your mind, with all of your ability to reason. That's pretty demanding, would you agree? Matthew Henry, the commentator, notes that all of our love is too little. Therefore, all of the power of our soul must be engaged as well. I like that. Makes good sense. Our soul needs to be engaged as well. The Christian life is very demanding, no question about it. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength And the reason why the Christian life is so demanding is because Christ is God and God is demanding. And I think this is what makes Christianity so unattractive for so many people, especially at the emotional level. It is very demanding. There's no question about it. Anybody who says the Christian life is an easy life is lying to you. God expects a lot. God gives a lot. He gives you saving grace. But God also expects much from those who would profess him, who would come to him. There's a great deal of selflessness in following after Christ. There's a lot of self-denial in following Christ. If you are loving God with all your soul, mind, heart, and strength, there's very little left for yourself. But here is the paradox of the Christian faith. 
A paradox is a truth that doesn't seem like a truth, okay? And, and here's the paradox of the Christian faith. By losing your life to Christ, you gain life. Now, humanly, that makes no sense whatsoever. The paradox of the Christian life is that by dying to yourself, you actually live. And so whereas God is demanding, in his demanding, he's also giving you life. And the more you forfeit yourself to Christ, the more life you live. You lose to win. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, Christ made it very clear. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said it again in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Whoever finds his life in this world will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me ask you, have you found life in Christ by losing your life to him. The job of the church, my friends, is to make God the highest love. And by making him the highest love, then to express worship to him. Make God the highest love and then worship him. That's why we're here. That's the priority of the church of Christ. And by doing that, my friends, you will be fed. You will find life as your life worships him. Is it simple? No. Essential? Absolutely. That means that all of our other loves, and we have other loves, but all of those other loves will be lesser loves. Because all other things are less than God. Augustine put it this way. He said that we are to love things, quote, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what ought to be loved. The primary task of this church, and any church that belongs to Christ, is to love God first, and express that love by ongoing worship of the true God. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My friends, in a world that's so filled with self-indulgent darkness, love for what is greater than us will actually bring about hope to a people who have just gorged themselves on self-gratification. And after gorging themselves on self-pleasure, they have walked away from the table down this dark alley where they have no idea where they're going feeling over-bloated, empty, and regretful. You know the feeling after Thanksgiving dinner, right? You say, why in the world did I eat so much? I should have stopped at the second helping. And you walk away from the table feeling, oh boy, I regret it. It was good, but boy, do I regret it. My friends, we live in a world that is just filled with so much darkness because people are just indulging in themselves again and again and again and they are finding that they're walking away from that table bloated and empty in despair.
and you have the answer to life. Let me give you a second purpose for the church. It's in that same text. But we're going to take a look at the Matthew text instead. Instead of the Luke text, let's go over to the Matthew 22 text. Matthew 22, verse 39. The second purpose of the church is to look outward and be a witness of God. To look outward outside of these walls and be a witness of God. This is the second greatest commandment according to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 2, verse 39. At the very end of the first commandment, he says, and the second is like it, okay? The second commandment is very similar to the first commandment. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not new to us, but awfully important. The second great commandment, the second greatest commandment of what God expects of us, of you, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you see there's a similarity between the first and the second. Both of them require deep and proper love. The first requires deep and proper love towards God. The second requires deep and proper love for ourselves and then for our neighbors. Love for others. Why? Because they too are image bearers of God. Oh, they may not be like you. You may not even like them. They may not like you. But they are image bearers. They are your neighbor. And God says, because they bear the image of God, to love them. Now notice here that God, Christ, did not say, I want you to love nature. It's nice to love nature. I hope you do. We're surrounded by beautiful nature. Not too long ago, a man, a pastor, and his wife came from Brooklyn here, and they were working on some documentation for, for his ordination. And again, they came from Brooklyn, and they took forever to get here. And when they walk in, she was from India, she said, where are all the people? <laughs> I said, well, we are surrounded by nature. Yes, but where are all the people? I said, well, they're around. They're just hiding behind all these trees, but we're here. <laughs> I thank the Lord for the nature that surrounds us. But God did not say, I want you to love nature, or even I want you to love your pets as much as you love yourself. No, he said, and honestly, it's easier to love nature and your pets sometimes, isn't it? He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I really love myself. Do you? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the person who is in the circle of your influence. That's your neighbor. It's not necessarily the person next door to you. In fact, some of you wouldn't have neighbors. The neighbor is the person who lives within your sphere of influence. That's your neighbor. You are to love that neighbor to the degree that you love yourself. That's the second great commandment. Now, before I go any further, let me just mention that there are two ways in which we love ourselves. Two ways in which we love ourselves. The the, the first one is a self-love that's very crooked, that's very damaging. 
Um, it's rooted in this inner corruption and deep sin. We call it selfishness. And, and that sort of self-love needs to get be done away with. We, we need to get rid of that love. It's a constant daily effort to get rid of that sort of corrupt self-love. But there's another kind of self-love that is very appropriate, and that's what Christ is speaking of. It's a self-love that reflects a proper concern for yourself, for your body, for your soul, for your destiny. That's a good self-love. It's a self-love that is natural, that is moral, a a self-love that is good love for yourself. It's the kind of self-love that gets you up in the morning and makes you brush your teeth and feed yourself and bathe yourself. Why do you do that? Because you love yourself. And God says that's the kind of love you should have for your neighbor. That sort of concern for those who are in your circle of influence. To the degree that you love yourself, then love them. Now some people look at this passage here and they say, well, you know, your God is a rather conceited God. Why is love for God first and love for neighbor second? Why, why shouldn't we love neighbor First, and God second. After all, neighbors are much more needy than God. They look at the God of the Bible and they say, wow, that man is really into himself. Well, keep in mind that God is, after all, God. And that there's no comparison between us and God. And because he is God, because he is great, because he's the creator, sustainer, sovereign ruler over all of creation, we should love him First, But there's another reason why we should love him first. John Calvin makes it very clear. Look at what Calvin says. He says that we cannot understand ourselves clearly until we have first gazed at the face of God. That's my paraphrase. We cannot love, we cannot understand ourselves clearly until we have first looked into the face of God. Only then can we scrutinize ourselves. Only then can we properly know and love ourselves. For us to love ourselves properly, first we have to see God. First we have to understand and know God. And then we begin to develop a love, a proper sort of love for ourselves. You know, we we live in... um, in a world that speaks so much about self, right? What's so good about you? I mean, look how many car commercials try to sell us a $45,000 car out of (laughs) self-love. Imagine yourself in this car. You deserve this car. Imagine what you can do with this car. If you have a new car, good for you. I just find it amazing how they sell it to us. And self-love, and improper self-love, by the way. This generation of youth and young adults is a generation that has heard more about self-esteem than any other generation in America, or maybe worldwide, ever. They have been raised on the idea of self-esteem. And yet, this is the generation with the greatest number of people who hate themselves and are killing themselves. We are presently, despite all the talk about self-esteem, we are presently in a suicide pandemic. Why? 
because we taught them to love themselves without first looking to God. You cannot understand yourself until first you look to Christ. Understand Christ, know Christ, and you will begin to know yourself and love yourself. And so first love God, then love yourself so that you can love your neighbor. Love for your neighbor, I think, is best illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Back in Luke chapter 10, you don't have to look there. But Luke chapter 10, if you're taking notes, verse 29. And once again, we see who the neighbor is. In fact, that's what Jesus Christ was asked. Well, sure, we'll we'll do good, but who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to do this for? And what we learn in the parable is that your neighbor is a person who's in need. Your your neighbor's maybe a friend, maybe an enemy. Your neighbor is maybe someone who's just passing through. Your neighbor is a person in your circle of influence. You are to love that person even as you love yourself. My friends, your love for your neighbor needs to be permeating this world. Maybe you feel like a drop of water against a rock and that your love is making no difference. Keep dripping. Keep dripping. Let them see the love of God in you. And I must say, at times it is very difficult. But that's the second greatest commandment. First, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Secondly, love your neighbor to the degree that you love yourself. Do for your neighbor those things you do for yourself. The mission of the church to look outward and be a testimony of Christ is what will begin to shine light in this overly darkened world. You want to make a difference in this world? In your world, in your little corner. Begin to love even as Christ has ordered us to. And here's the last point this morning. What is the third purpose of the church? Well, we looked at two great commandments, first and the second, and now we look at the new commandment. And that's in John chapter 13. I told you we would be landing there. You just didn't realize it was going to take this long. John chapter 13. A new commandment. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another. There it is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, take a look at the context there. You see that this is the farewell speech of Jesus Christ before he's arrested and goes to the cross. And he's announcing just that, that he's going to be crucified. The disciples are having a hard time understanding that. And here Jesus Christ announces that, yes, I will be going, but this is a good thing because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come. And this will be to your advantage that the Holy Spirit come. The Holy Spirit is referred to here as a paraclete in the, in the Greek. Paraclete. Um, it means advocate or comforter. So Jesus Christ is the first paraclete, the first comforter, 
The Holy Spirit is the second comforter. And what we see here when Jesus Christ leaves, that the Holy Spirit is going to come on the church of Jesus Christ. And it will be the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the comforter on the disciples, which will now mark the presence of God with the church. How will the church know the presence of God? Through the Holy Spirit in them. This will be the presence of God. And it will be also the Holy Spirit there with them will also now allow them to carry out the ministry of Jesus Christ. God will be with them and God will enable them. God will be present with them and now God, through the Holy Spirit, will enable them to carry out the ministry of Jesus Christ to each other. Notice here Jesus Christ says, love one another. We're not talking about outside. We're talking about looking inward and nurturing one another. That's the purpose of the church, to nurture each other. In fact, verse 34 again says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How are we to love each other? How are we to nurture each other? In the same way that Jesus Christ loved and nurtured us. So here Jesus Christ is not only giving us the command, but he's setting the example. You are to love one another to the degree that I have loved you. My friends, how much has Christ loved you? He sacrificed for you. Nurturing one another means that we would sacrifice for each other. And some people will say, well, you know, this is more than what I bargained for when I said I'm going to church today. But understand that with this command that God gives, he gives life. When you lose your life, you what? You gain life. You find life. It's not more than what you bargained for. It's everything you need. The church is to nurture one another by loving each other, even as Christ has loved the church. To nurture means that you're going to care for or cultivate. Um, you're going to look after each other. Uh, you're going to foster and develop encouragement in one another. That's what it means to nurture and, and again, we're talking about here within our walls, within the church of Christ. Now, you see, the church is essential because it is to serve as a greenhouse for the Christian family. A greenhouse. Any of you like to garden? You know the beauty of being able to plant a garden in the middle of the winter because you have a greenhouse. You could grow your tomatoes and your flowers and whatever you want in that greenhouse. And that's the church. It doesn't matter what the environment is outside. Inside, you grow. Because we nurture one another. By nurturing one another, we are completing the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we experience God's presence when we nurture one another. Now some of you will remember the, uh, the silly love song from the 19. 70s, 1977, actually. Um, the things we do for love. Remember that? The things we do for love. Like walking in the rain and the snow, when there's nowhere to go, and you're feeling like a part of you is dying. 
I remember back in 1977, I didn't know what love was. I'd never fallen in love. So it was just a song. In due time, I learned what love is. And I realized that love does make you do things you would normally not do. Love makes you do things that you would never have dreamt of doing earlier. And suddenly you're willing, more than willing. You see, that's why Jesus Christ says, love one another. Because if you're willing to love one another, even as Christ loved the other, you're willing to do things you would have never dreamt of doing before. Love is a great motivator. The things we do for love are incredible when we are imitating Christ. Love for one another often, my friends, will lead to a willingness to sacrifice for others. This would be, in the truest sense, a realization of the presence of Christ among us, that we would be willing to sacrifice for one another, to love deeply one another, to nurture one another. Uh, By the way, look at verse 35. Look at what Jesus Christ says. Verse 35, Christ says, By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we're not talking about people outside our walls per se. We're talking about even within. We will know that we belong to Christ, that we are the people of God, saints saved by his grace when we love one another. If you're doing what Christ was doing, then you must be a disciple of Christ. That's what it comes down to. In this way, the church becomes a light on a hill. That's what we were talking about a few weeks ago, remember? The church is a light on a hill. In what sense? If we are nurturing one another. We nurture one another when we pray for one another. We nurture one another when we encourage one another. We nurture each other when we gather together. You cannot nurture away from each other. We nurture one another when we assist, when we repent of our sins before one another, when we forgive each other, when we edify each other, when we befriend each other. You see, these are all means by which we nurture each other. When we reconcile and when we worship together, when we teach or admonish one another, when we submit and honor to each other, when we offer ourselves generously to each other, we are nurturing one another when we are just and honest and hospitable to one another when we are merciful and gracious to each other when we are patient with one another what are we doing we are nurturing one another we are loving even as Christ has loved us let me quote to you from Clink one more time and then we'll wrap it up Edward Klink notes that having been loved by the Father, the church is commanded by Christ to love one another like a mother, nurturing all the children of God. So why are we here, my friends? We are here so that we would look upward and worship God, so that we would look outward and be a witness of Christ to this world, so that we would look inward and nurture each other. And by doing this, my friends, we will be a light to this world. 
And we will begin to give hope to a people who are living in doom. And my friends, I'm not talking just about those outside our walls. Sometimes we walk in here overwhelmed by the darkness as well. We walk in here wondering what will happen next. And what should we find here? Hope. Hope in the light of Christ. Pray with me, will you? Our Lord and our Savior, how grateful we are that you are the one who extends hope. And we thank you, Lord, for these mandates. Mandates that bring us life, not harm. Mandates that bring us joy, not horror. And we pray, Lord, that we would fulfill our purpose, even as you have ascribed. In your name we pray. Amen.